let's take a second and talk about kingdoms. What makes something a kingdom? Maybe a palace? Definitely a king with a royal family. Probably an unruly uncle or something. Maybe some servants, a cheesemaker, some people who need ruling, and of course, a blacksmith. But that's not the kind of kingdom we are talking about. Much of Jesus' teaching was telling us about his kingdom, well, his father's kingdom. It was about how to experience God's rule while we are here on earth. People had a hard time understanding what this would look like, so Jesus opted to use stories or parables. He told stories about seeds, stories about weeds, grapes, and pirate treasure? <laughs> well, some kind of treasure. Some people got it, some people didn't, but it wasn't supposed to be easy to understand. Jesus said it was actually kind of a secret that you needed to get your heart around before you could really understand it. And telling those secrets is what Jesus was all about. We are back in Matthew chapter 13, where we started this Telling Secrets series on the parables last Sunday, a copy of the Bible. You can access it and we'll look at those verses or some verses in just a minute. In this series on the parables of Jesus, on the parable which I introduced last Sunday. This morning, it's going to be, there's only two parables. We looked at one last week where there's a parable and then an explanation given. Right? The disciples come to Jesus sort of after the fact and say, help Jesus, what does this mean? And in the parable of the sower, or the soils, which we looked at last Sunday, and this one, uh, the parable of the weeds, uh, Jesus um, gives a parable and also an explanation. But let me just tell you what I think this parable from the start is about. I think what Jesus is doing in this also well-known parable uh, about the kingdom of God, is addressing one of the greatest problems, you might say, the biggest questions that comes to the Christian faith from people um, outside of it and inside of it, and that is the problem of evil. How do we make sense, or how are we to make sense of God and the gospel and his involvement in, the, in a world um, that is full of evil? The parable of the weeds. You have a copy of the Bible. You can follow along as I read. First, the parable, Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, and then I'll jump to the explanation in verse 36 and following. Follow along as I read. Jesus told them another parable, verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you might uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Verse 36. Then he left the house and went into uh, the crowd and went into the house. 
His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. First thing Jesus wants to address, I think, in this passage, as I said, is to talk about the nature of evil that I think past and present um, people, Christians and non-Christians, tend to underestimate um, when they think about it in their life and in the world. First thing, my first point, I think Jesus is saying, is your problems run deeper than you think. Okay, your problems run deeper than you think. I'm talking about not just my life and your life, but the world that we live in. It's hard to escape, right, if you read the scriptures like we're doing this morning, but if you read them and if, you, if you're a Bible believer, it's hard to escape the reality that Jesus um, believed in, the disciples believed in evil. When I say they believed in evil, I don't mean that Jesus believed in, you know, the, the presence of evil or the, the, you know, that evil is this sort of abstract concept that's out there. Even the most, you know, uh, non-believing, sophisticated, you know, uh, people out there, um, no one would deny, I don't think, that anybody whatever their background, however you know, uh, non-religious they might be, no one would probably deny to look out into the world and deny that evil exists. But what Jesus says is more than evil exists. He personifies it. There is an evil one, and he even calls him here the devil, right? So, uh, you know, the devil does not cease to exist just because you or I or modern people say he doesn't exist. Jesus says he does exist, and his primary focus in the scriptures is to frustrate the purpose of God in your life, in my life, in the life of a church like this one, and in the world, right? This is what Jesus wants to say, at least one of the things he wants. Sir, shall we pull up these? Where did these weeds come from? An enemy has sown them, right? And then he says, let me tell you who that enemy is. He's not, you know communism or socialism or he's the devil he's the evil one and his focus is to frustrate the purposes of God and you need to be aware of it if you want to have an adult relationship with evil in the world including in your life and in mine some of you know I've talked about this before that I uh, before I came to Browncroft just uh, not long before I spent a year as a as a missionary um, in the former Yugoslavia, if your memory goes back that far, because we have so many crises in the world. But in that year, in the former Yugoslavia, it was a bunch of years, about 10, there was a number of wars, and in South Central Europe, and that's where the term ethnic cleansing 
came from into the vocabulary. Okay? And what ethnic cleansing means is not that a bunch of people go up to the battlefield and get killed, soldiers killing soldiers. What ethnic cleansing means is that people come in and it's a carpet bombing kind of scorched earth, you know, summary execution of civilians, of men and women and children. In, in a moment, while they're farming their fields, while they're washing their clothes, and it's done for one reason, because of their ethnicity, right? Ethnic cleansing. It's one thing to hear about that in the news. It's another thing to see it up close and personal, especially the aftermath, which I was had the opportunity to do for a year to hear about people, tell you about their brother and their uncle and their aunt and their son and their daughter who were killed um, in this horrible situation something more is at play I guess is what I'm saying (laughs) then you know when people go into synagogues and churches and malls as they do almost every week in this country and kill people indiscriminately right something more is at play I would suggest to you and many of you than, than simply mental illness or human selfishness And you might say to yourself, as a lot of people do, as I do maybe, you know, why doesn't God do something about it, right? If God is all-powerful as we believe he is, as the scriptures say, why does God not do something about restraining the evil in the world? And I would say to you, right, your problems run deeper than you think. God is doing something about it, actually, even though to you and me it may not seem like he does. One verse of scripture, 2 Thessalonians, Paul answering this very same question to his congregation uh, years and years ago, 2,000 years ago. For the secret power of lawlessness, Paul's answering this question. He's talking about personified evil. He's, He's educating his congregation. The secret power of lawlessness, right, another way of talking about the devil, is already at work, but... Circle that word. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, you got to read the whole context. What he's saying is, listen, guys and ladies, I know that it's bad out there. And people are, 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 are killing people and there's evil running rampant in the world, in the school system, in, in, you know, in, in, in the malls, in the culture, all over the place. Evil is running rampant. But let me tell you something, what Jesus is saying in this passage, or Paul is saying in this passage, it's not nearly as bad as it could be, right? It's not nearly as bad as it could be. The one who is now, uh, who who now holds it back, identified as the Holy Spirit of God in this passage, will continue to do so. He's saying, listen. Your problems run deeper than you think. It's a lot worse than you can imagine. If God was not actively in the world right now in the presence of the Spirit, holding back in some way, keeping, you know, fighting back the powers of evil, we wouldn't even be able to get through a day, right? It's much, could be much, much worse. God is doing something about it. In God's limited action, so I'm saying there's a limited action. He's not eliminating all of it. But his limited action is not an evidence of his lack of love. So often people think about it. If God was all loving or all powerful, he'd do do something about it. It's not an evidence of his lack of love. His limited response is actually a demonstration of his love. I say, hmm. Was the great Solzhenitsyn? It's, it's, remember the point: your problems are deeper than you think. If you remember Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 
has been dead for, I don't know, probably not more than 10 years, great Russian writer, uh, you know, won the Nobel Prize for literature. But part of the reason he won the Nobel Prize is because he spent many years in, in, in labor camps in the former Soviet Union, and he learned a thing or two about human nature. And one of his great quotes is the dividing line of good and evil after looking at it so close, the dividing line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, right? Every human being. God could eradicate evil, ipso facto, if he wanted to, but if God eradicated evil the way that some of us wanted to, he'd take us with him, okay? Because the dividing line of good and evil runs right through every human heart, including yours, including mine. But Jesus paved the way so that when God does ultimately destroy evil, which is what this parable gets at, right? The harvest is the end of the age. Well, God will uproot all that is wrong and those who do evil. That when God does destroy evil, he does not have to destroy us, right? Your problems run deeper than you think. Second point to the heart of this passage, patience is required. I'm talking about the problem of evil. Patience is required. I mentioned this last week if you were here, and in, in Jesus introduces in the first parable, the parable of the sowers, the parables of the seed, he says, let me tell you why parables. Let me tell you why. Why am I not quoting from the Old Testament? Why am I not saying, open your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy or the book of Isaiah and giving you a classic sermon? Why am I telling you these colorful stories? I'm doing it for various purposes. I want to speak, communicate to you. But what I'm communicating to you which is not necessarily, you know, a didactic teaching. It's a revelation, right? I'm teaching you powerful truths. I'm revealing something to you. These are spiritual truths. As that video says, you have to wrap your heart around them. But one of the secrets of the kingdom, that's what Jesus' words, not mine. The secrets of the kingdom is this. I mentioned it last week. There are not two, there's not one coming, there's two. So most people read the Old Testament and they did for generations and they were waiting they were looking for all the promises of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a new concept that's been around for the, from, from the beginning of the scriptures. And the kingdom of God was in a manner of speaking the way you and I would first think of it like that video said as we opened this. It means, you know, it's setting the world to rights. It's fixing all the political problems. It's fixing all the cultural problems. It's fixing the wrong taxation and the corruption and, and, and setting the world to rights and that's what we long for. And for generations, people associated the coming of the Messiah, the one promise way back there in the book of Moses, all the way through the prophets, the coming Messiah with setting the world to right. So when Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, they said, good, it's time. All the world's problems are going to be cleaned up. All the, all the, everything's going to be set straight. But Jesus says, well, let me tell you the secret of the kingdom. There's not two comings, or there's not one coming, there's two comings, right? In the second coming book of Revelation, all of those things are going to happen. That's what he's affirming here, right? At the end of the age, the Son of Man's going to send out his angels, and they're going to weed out all the bad stuff. There's going to be a, a judgment, the blending furnace, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, right? In the second coming. But in the first coming, he didn't come to judge the world. He came to be judged for the world, right? Because if God judged the world in his first coming, there'd be no world left to enjoy, right? Your problems run deeper than you think. But listen to this amazing thing. This is what he says. 
And I'm quoting Jesus now, back in the original parable. Verse 30. Let them, what's them? Good and evil. Right? Grow together. The children of the kingdom and the children of the evil one. Let them grow together. That's his plan. Good ideas and bad ideas. Right? Healing and disease. They grow together. Let me say, if, if, you ever, if you're a Bible believer here today, not everybody is, but if you're a Bible believer, look no further than the parable of the weeds for an explanation of why evil exists in the world. This is what Jesus is saying. She said, I get it, guys. There's the, the, he, he ends the parable this way. Listen, I know there's people out there causing sin and doing evil, and it's all over the place. From the micro to the macro, from the, from the city and the school system to the family unit, all the way to global politics. I know what's going on there, but here's my great plan. Let them grow together, right? Let them grow together. And here's what's so mind-blowing. The secrets of the kingdom is another way of saying, let me try to help you understand what it means to walk with Jesus Christ in this time and this day. What it means, what's really going on, and if your head's screwed on straight, if you're willing to listen last week's message, and really let the word of God take a hold of your heart to be a mature response to what the Bible has to say. And what I'm saying to you, one of the secrets of the kingdom is this, that the evil all around you, okay, you can try to protect yourself from it. You can live in that kind of bubble or cocoon, but it's, you're, you're kidding yourself, right? The evil all around you, whether that's the sin of others, sometimes it's your own sin, sometimes it's the sin of others, the deep disappointments that we all experience, the losses, Right? The loss of life, the sickness and the disease and all the things that happen to us, the evil around you can actually be used to stimulate your growth. Right? Let them both circle this, grow together until the harvest. Because in that relationship, often we learn who we are and who we're not. And we experience God in new ways. And sometimes we actually are motivated and matured to actually change the world because of that relationship, right? Patience is required. I read a book recently that was just profound to me. I'll I'll, I'll reference it to you or, or recommend it to you. It's called The Rise of Christianity. The guy's name is uh, Rodney Stark. He's a um, professor at the University of Washington. But he wrote, he he challenged, and I think has changed. Now, it's about 25 years ago when the book was written, but I just read it recently. He changed the, 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 the belief of scholars of why the Christian church grew so much in the first four centuries. This has been true for historians, whether you're Christian or not, it doesn't matter. Um, but historians would tell you this, and they've been saying this for, forever, that the Christian church, Christianity, in the first four centuries radically changed. It became the dominant um, you know, a religious idea, and it changed the world. Okay, That's, that's indisputable. And, and it overtook what was 
uh, really polytheism. Outside of Judaism, small uh, Middle Eastern uh, uh, religion, outside of Judaism, the only monotheistic faith going back to the original ancient world, the rest of the world only had one, if you want to call it religion, it was later called paganism, but really it was polytheism. And almost the entire world in the days of Jesus and before were polytheists. In other words, they worshipped gods, they worshipped idols, that was it. And the gods and the idols, which had many names and came in many forms, but one thing was true of all of them, there was no talk about the afterlife and there was no sense of it was God, the gods were not benevolent it was an appeasement system you appeased God for rain you appeased God for kids if you were infertile you needed crops you needed help you needed money it was an appeasement system and that was true across the board but Christianity was different and, um, but anyway, what, what, what happened was that what many people believed for years was that what, how the Christian church went from this small little movement in 400 years to dominating the world was through mass conversions because they looked at the book of Acts. And if you look at the book of Acts, which only covers about 35 years, the first 35 of the growth of the church, but you see thousands of people coming to Christ, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. They, they extrapolate out and they said, this is how the church grew. It mass conversions in 400 years, but the data in the 20th century when they started to do archaeological work and documents and all kinds of other uh, work, and they said, it doesn't prove out. And in this book, just one, it's a very well-known book, Rodney Stark's book, he said, this is what they discovered. First on the numbers. The Christian movement, at the end of the first century, which is only 50 or 60 years after Jesus rose from the dead, etc., right? In the year 100, there was roughly about 10,000 Christians. Now, that's not that many right? 10,000 Christians. There's more than that in Rochester, probably, or whatever. 10,000 Christians. By the end of the year 200, the best they can um, do this, there was about 200,000. It's a lot, but that's at the end of 160 years of Christian faith spreading all over the world. At the end of the 4th century, okay, there was, or not even, really at the end of the 3rd century, into the 4th century, there was almost 30 million Christians, okay? And they said, how did that happen? And this is what this research discovered. It was not through mass conversions, right? As I said, by the end of the 1st century, there was only 10,000 Christians. But two things happened that changed the understanding of how the church grew in the first four centuries. And they were the two great plagues that happened in the Roman Empire, in the end of the 2nd century and into the 3rd century. The first one was smallpox, the second one was measles. And in the smallpox um, uh, plague that happened at the end of the 2nd century, it was so big, they say up to a third of all people in the Roman Empire, think about that, died. It went on for 15 years and they said during the smallpox, just as an example, in the city of Rome, which then was probably less than a million people, right? The metropolitan Rochester was the whole city of Rome. Every single day, 5,000 people died. If you remember that old Monty Python movie, you know, bring out your dead if you're old enough to remember. This is literally, literally what happened. People were piled up everywhere. This smallpox thing was so bad that Marcus Aurelius, one of the great five emperors of the Roman Empire, also succumbed to smallpox. Even he couldn't be protected. The second one was measles. The same thing happened in the second, between the 2nd and 3rd century. 
Hundreds of thousands and millions of people. It wiped out their military. The old saying on the Roman Empire was it imploded because of moral degradation. The new theory is it wasn't that. The military was absolutely wiped out. The infrastructure was wiped out because whole generations were wiped out because of the disease. But here's the point. Here's the insight. When these plagues happened, the polytheism or the imperial worship which existed, that was the religion of the day, okay? There's no hope for an afterlife, and there's no sort of benevolence. So when this happened, because measles and smallpox are both contagious, let me tell you what the average person did, even to their wife, even to their brother, even to their uncle, they headed for the hills because it was contagious, and people were dying like flies. But the scholars say the Christians... The Christians, of which were only tens of thousands, the Christians in these cities, right? They had two things that nobody else had. They were, they were dying too, but they had two things. Number one, they had a conviction that although life was difficult and people were dying and evil was happening and people were, even your friends were dying, that there was a judgment at the end of time. There was a harvest at the end of the time. There was life after this life. And in that life, God would deal with wrong and he would bless what's right. And there was a hope for the next life that other people didn't have. And the second thing that Christians had, according to this research, was that they understood that they came to faith in Jesus Christ because of a God who sacrificed for others in Jesus. And he said, we're supposed to do what he did. So instead of walking away from the burning building, they walked into it. And over the course of many decades, as people saw the Christian community, their neighbors and their friends who were Christians, who had the courage and the vision to be able to walk into this disease, many of them died. Some of them created a, resili a resilience to these strains of, of these two um, plagues. But ultimately, that became the reason that the Christian church went from this small of 10,000 people. By the time you get to the 4th century, 30 million people, so the research says. The Roman Empire at the time of the 4th century had about 60 million. Almost half of the entire Roman Empire came, not because of preaching, not simply because of doing what I'm doing here this morning, because people walked into the burning building because of the hope that they had about what happens at the end of time. Okay, That's our purpose for living. Brings these verses to light, Matthew 25. Jesus is saying the same thing. It's a judgment passage. We'll get to it next Spring. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. This is a great judgment. And people are trying to say, Jesus, what gives? How did we end up on the right side of the equation? I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him. This is a parable about judgment at the end of time. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go, uh, uh, and go visit you? Then the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me, right? You did it for me. Jesus says, listen, the world is full of evil. And so is the church, by the way, you know, because the church is just full of people that are from the world. But let them grow together until the harvest is done. Let them grow together. Because the hope is and the proximity is that because you have a hope that is greater than anything else this world has to offer, you have a relationship with a Savior that does have 
um, offer eternal life. You can get in there. You go mix it up there. You go into the hospital system. You go into the education system. You go in there. Do you know the hospital system in, this, in, in the United States of America? Maybe it's in the whole world. You know, we don't tell these stories. The entire hospital system was more or less started by Christians. I'm talking about going back, you know. And so was, so was the best education. Now, it, it, today we don't think of it that way, right? Those people, slavery, okay? I mean, you know these stories, right? Some of these, uh, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce stood against uh, everyone in, uh, against him for decades fighting for, for the abolition uh, of, of slavery in the UK, which influenced Lincoln and others he, because of his convictions of Jesus Christ, because he believed there was another world, okay? Patience is required. Let them both grow together until the harvest. We don't need to retreat from the world. We need to go into the world and bring the hope that the world doesn't offer. Last thing, the kingdom is far more radical than you think. You've got to make this point quickly. But this is also in this parable. You see, here's what I think Jesus, people do to Christianity then and now. They're, it's almost like someone promises you this big thing and then it comes to that day and they say, well, I, I'm going to give you everything I promised, but it's not going to be for 20 years. And, then, and, then, and that so blows your mind, it's so disappointing to you that you just kind of, you forget about everything. You just go back to, you know, the mud, you know, slop with the pigs. And it's another story Jesus tells us. You, 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 you've lost your capacity to believe. And see, when Jesus said, listen, there's not one coming, there's two. All this is going to happen, but i got to deal with this other problem first, and I want you guys to be part of the solution. I'm going to send you into the world. People just got discouraged, and they begin to have very low expectations about the kingdom of God, right? And I think that's what we do, too, because, but Jesus, what this parable tells us, our vision is far too small. See, here's what we think. Even some, the Christian, you know, uh, conservative community over the last 20 or 30 years. We, you know what we think our vision is? You know, it's political change, right? You know, we, we want to we change politics. We want to change the Supreme Court. And all these things are, are valid, but that's, that's so far too small of a vision, it's not political. The kingdom of God is not political change. The kingdom of God is not about cultural change. The kingdom of God is not about making a little bit more money or living a longer life. Oh my goodness. The kingdom of God is about a whole different vision of reality altogether, right? What the Bible's saying is reality as we know it is completely broken. And where this world is going is a place where there is no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more mental illness, no more illness of any kind. It's a world full of creativity, full of joy, full of endless possibilities. And get this to the interpretation. Get this. The seed of that world are the people of the kingdom. Look in the mirror, right? Here's the great thing about this. You know, the, the, the kingdom of God is far more radical than you think. How come God doesn't show up? How come he doesn't act sooner? Let me tell you something about what this parable says. The seeds of the kingdom, God's rule, God's reign, setting everything straight, it's been planted. It has not been harvested, right? It's almost like you're saying, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, and I see all the stalks growing, and I'm, I'm 20 yards away from, from all the, 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 the corn. I have a, there's a farm market, I drive by it every day near my house. You, know, you can see it growing, but you can say, I'm hungry, it doesn't do me any good, right? In a manner of speaking, the kingdom of God has been planted, but it hasn't been harvested yet. That's what Jesus is saying. It hasn't even had the harvest yet. And good night, you think, you think the kingdom of God is about right and left? It's about 
a little bit more money in your pocket, you're thinking far too small. You're thinking far too small. I'm thinking far too small. And in the meantime, we have a job to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, listen to these words. Paul speaking, similar idea to his congregation or one of them in Greece. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. When he says, however, he's saying, listen, it's not all coming tomorrow. Paul's giving this, but let me give you some insight. We do speak a message of wisdom among the mature, right? It's kind of what Jesus is saying in the secrets of the kingdom. Wake up, snap out of it, grow up, listen carefully, and understand. We do speak a wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who underestimate the problem and therefore come up with half-baked solutions, who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, ready for it? A mystery or a secret that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, if they understood that God was going to solve the world's problems, not through the economy, not through a movie star, not through some, you know, bankroll it, he was going to do it through a a humble carpenter in a two-bit town and called Nazareth where nobody cared about and he would not, you know, he would not, you know, shout from the rooftops. He he, he wouldn't, you know, bruise the reed or, you know, uh, 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 stamp out the wick, right? Now he's Matthew chapter 12. He wasn't going to shout it from the streets. He was going to be a humble man, not riding on a white horse, but riding on a donkey, which all seemed like a waste of time. Had they known it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand that before God had to judge the world, he had to be judged for the world, or there would be no world. However, as it is written, here's the big idea, right? What no eye has seen, right? What God has planned, it's not, it's not, it's not, you know, uh, your lake house to the third power, okay? What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived. Can you imagine a world without disease? Can you imagine a world without divorce? Can you imagine a world without pain? Can you imagine a world without sorrow, without cheating, without lying? Can you imagine it? What no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Right? Love him. And he says, listen, the seeds of that world, right? They're the sons and the daughters of the kingdom. They're you, right? They're you. What are you doing with it? Sam Acho, if you were here Saturday or Tuesday night, the, the, the um, football player guy who was at this men's thing, he said something. It was a Q&A, and he said, you know, his father's a pastor. He's been a Christian for a long time. He goes, you know, one thing I want to just say, I want to sort of correct some thinking. Um, this is my, this is, he was talking about his own life. He said, my whole life I've been talking about what a man's job is to do is take care of his family. And of course, we would amen that, right? Take care of your family. Take care of your kids. Take care of your wife. Wife, take care of your husband. Take care of your family. But he said, you know, we can take that too far. You know, like our job is to keep our, ourselves and our, and our kids and our family from everything that's wrong and evil in the world. And we just kind of live. That's, that's success. He goes, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> Let them both grow up together. Good and evil. Good ideas and bad ideas. Disease and healing. Let them grow up together. Right? Get out of your, you know, get your head out of the sand. Right? Let them grow up together. Learn what it means to, to, to trust Jesus Christ in a deeper way in your life and walk into the burning house. 
right? Because you know what they don't. That God, there is a, there is a reckoning coming. And he is going to come and, un, and uproot everything that is wrong and, and that is evil. And there is going to be a judgment and weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, right? Let me say this. This is a parable of judgment. I don't know. You, there's no way around this, guys. You know, this is a parable of judgment. These are not my words, all that are wrong and do evil will be taken and cast into a, into a fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? It's a judgment. And you either stand before him now, give yourself to him now, or you stand before him later. It's up to you. Okay? It's up to you. I know uh, many of you, because I know you, some of you, been Christians for a long time. And you're still mucking it up, growing up together with evil, right? You know, like me. But you've, you've trusted Christ as your Savior. You've received the gift of eternal life. You, you had God do for you what you could never do for yourself. And, and, and that's the greatest decision you'll ever make, even if your life's falling apart at the seams. But if you've never made that decision, okay, if you'd say, I've, I've been to church before and I've heard the message before and I've thrown some money in the plate before and I've given some kind of credence or sense to it, I'm a religious person, kind of, but I've never understood the grace of God. I've never understood that the gospel is not about what we can do for God, you know, doing our best and offering it to him. It's about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He became sin for us. That is, he was judged. That's about cross, right? He became sin for us who knew no sin. That's Jesus. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that we might receive his forgiveness and become a child of the kingdom. Amen? So if you've never received that, I was in a church for 18 years before I did, I would strongly encourage you to open your life to him. I don't want your money, I don't want anything other than your attention to respond to the love of God that's offered to you free of charge in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So let's pray. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. And if you're a Christian in this room, just pray silently and pray for others. But if, you, if you'd say, Rob, I don't know if I'm a wheat or a weed <laughs> and I want to become a, a son of the kingdom, a daughter of the kingdom, you do it by faith, by belief, by receiving, not by earning. Pray this prayer with me in your own words silently. Paul would later say to the church in Rome, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, it's a belief thing. We shall be saved. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, whatever your background is, whatever your problems are or aren't, whether you're a church person or never been a church person, 
whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So pray this prayer again silently where you sit in your own words. God, thank you for sending your son into a burning house, so to speak, into this world to be punished for my sin. And thank you that he rose from the dead having earned the right to cancel my debts, to forgive me so that I might receive the promised Holy Spirit and become a son or daughter of God. And I ask you right now to forgive me of all of my sin and to enter my life as my father, as my savior. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. If you prayed that prayer right here in this moment, just if you would, just for my eyes, slip your hand up. Just want to see it. Thank you, thank you. Just slip it up. Yes, all over the place. Just slip your hand up. Let me pray for us and we're done. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for every person in this room. Thank you for the men and women uh, and students who just um, maybe opened their hearts and minds and lives for the very first time to the amazing grace and gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do what you say and that you would give them the promised Holy Spirit, that they might know that they are your sons and daughters. And I pray you would help us as a community, Lord, to um, see the world the way that you do, to have an adult view of the world, but to know that greater is he that that is in us than he that is in the world. Help us, Lord, to go forward boldly and humbly with your word into a world full of need. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great Sunday.